this week on the Back Table Podcast. Everything. I mean, you get better the more you do it, yeah. I, but I, it is time consuming. And I kind of, you know, I, you know, if I have certain photos I want to include, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, s- save them and then I'll, you know, post them at certain times or spread them out throughout the week. But it is, I mean, it does take time to kind of pick the picture, you know, put the little blurb that you want. I think the, the hardest part is, is how you want to present yourself on social media. Right. You know, some explain, people explain that. Yeah. So some people like to have, you know, try to try to create these funny posts and, you know, kind of witty or whatnot. And some people keep it very professional. Welcome back to the Back Table ENT podcast. This is your host, Gopi Shaw, and I have a very special guest today, Dr. Eric Sarati, who's a board certified facial plastic surgeon from Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Eric is an assistant professor and director of facial plastics and reconstructive surgery at the University of Utah. He's also the official surgeon for the Utah Jazz, the U.S. Ski and Snowboarding Association, the U.S. Speed Skating, U.S. Bobsledding, as well as the U.S. Surgeon to the International Olympic and Paralympic Medical Committees. He's also done uh, volunteer work for medical missions for children. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about your practice, um, you know, and where you're from, where you grew up, all that kind of stuff. All right. So like you said, I'm the Director of Facial Plastic Surgery at the University of Utah. So that's in Salt Lake City. So part of the affiliation with all those different sports teams it just has to do with the location where we're where, where I'm based out of. Obviously, we have a lot of extreme athletes here. You know, with Park City, a very high percentage of Olympic athletes, and also you know they had the Olympics here several years ago. I did medical school in South Carolina, which is where I'm from. I did my training in New York City at NYU, and I did an additional fellowship in Chicago. And so I guess I continued my journey out west, and now I'm here. Um, <laughs> So I have a, you know, my practice is 100% academic. You know, I cover the full spectrum of facial plastic surgery. So I do everything from, say, like urgent, emergent, you know, facial fracture repairs to fully cosmetic facelifts. So it's kind of the full spectrum of the field. And it, you know, keeps me on my toes and keeps it exciting. Yeah. So for academics and having a, being able to have you know, a cosmetic practice. Tell us how you develop that. Cause it seems that, you know, sometimes in academics, you know, it may be harder to build that cosmetic practice. Well, I can't take full credit for that. I think that the people uh, here before me, you know, did a lot of the legwork. So that was, you know, kind of the, the structure of it was already in place. It, you know, I could really take the practice in whatever direction I wanted to. And my goal was to have, you know, 50% reconstructive or, you know, say an insurance-based practice and 50% cosmetic. And I guess we'll, uh, you know, as we get further along in the podcast, you're going to ask specifically about my patient demographics. So we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, no, you can tell us about your patient mix. If you'd like to go ahead and do that, that's fine. Yeah. So when I first came, obviously it was a lot of insurance-based you know, and you kind of, you're slowly building up your reputation, especially, you know, not from Salt Lake City. I don't have any ties here. So, you know, it's really building a, a, a reputation in the area. So the cosmetic portion has, has slowly become, you know, bigger and bigger. I would say 
there's been a big change since the COVID shutdown. I would say before COVID, I was probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 35% cosmetic. And then since the COVID shutdown or since the reopening after the, you know, the closure of all elective procedures, we've had a huge increase in, in cosmetic cases. And while I thought that was very rare and unusual, yeah. apparently a lot of people are experiencing that kind of across the country. Yeah. And then, so you were talking about a little bit of your patient mix. You said with the academics, a lot of the fractures have been coming in as well as your cosmetics. Tell me about sort of some of the things or what you've used for practice building or what platforms. So I guess before we get into that, so, you know, facial plastics fellowships kind of, you know, some are geared more towards reconstructive, some are geared more towards cosmetic. You know, I did a, my fellowship was an academic fellowship, but the surgeons uh, were familiar and understand the, understood the importance of, you know, outside marketing. And so, you know, I kind of learned a little bit through the fellowship. And so I kind of brought that, you know, once I started this job in Salt Lake City and facial plastic surgery is kind of unique in that, you know, people don't necessarily, I mean, obviously having a, a, a big hospital name like the University of Utah, you know, back you, you know, it does provide credibility and it does bring in some patients, but, you know, particularly the cosmetic patients, you know, sometimes being affiliated with an academic center can be a, a negative. Right. And so, and so you have to kind of, it's like a hurdle you gotta, you, you have to deal with. But, you know, I've worked with the, you know, the marketing department, but you know, the marketing for an academic center is different than marketing for, you know, a facial plastics practice. If they kind of think more or less like, you know, like a private practice or, you know, what a consumer would look for. So for me, I have a, a website and I've done social media marketing and that's, you know, all on my own. And it is very time consuming, I would yeah. say. but I tend to, you know, kind of focus my efforts on, you know, Facebook and Instagram. And so that's helped. And, you know, obviously the best advertising is word of mouth, but that's just, you know, time in the, in whatever location you're at. You know, I think you hit a really make an interesting point, the important importance of marketing and how this is something that you found because of your fellowship. You know, we don't really have that in our residency training and probably majority of fellowships. And I feel like when you first come out, regardless of whether you're doing facial plastics, general ENT, sinus, peds, whatever, it's hard to understand, you know, how do you market yourself? How do you market your practice or, or the fact that you're even supposed to do that? Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, doctors are, are classically, you know, terrible at business. You're right. <laughs> and, you know, when I went into med school, I was, you know, a math major in college, which obviously does nothing for me. You know, I, I wish I would have had a business degree. I um, did more of that because, you know, recently just talking to a recent grad and, you know, just it's a big change and, you know, there's probably more things we could do such as, hey, this is how you market yourself while they're, while they're in residencies. Or even contract negotiations. I mean, I don't think I saw a, a physician contract until I was nearing the end of fellowship. Yeah. No, for sure. And for me, you know, I'm in academics as well. I was flat out told, hey, there's really nothing to negotiate. Like this is the standard when you're starting it out. 
That's true. Well, everything's negotiable. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's interesting that they tell us that kind of stuff. Do you have any do you have a fellow, Eric? I don't, but that's that's probably something I'm gonna explore here in the next couple of years. Okay. Just adding a fellowship here. And do your residents come to you and talk to you about sort of marketing and do you feel like they, you know, find you as a resource? They do. And, and actually with the whole COVID restrictions, yeah, a lot of residency programs are not having, you know, they're trying to figure out how they're going to reach out and advertise the program to potential medical students who yeah. want to go into that particular field. And so our, you know, our, our division of otolaryngology is now has a, as an Instagram page, they're yeah. like try, trying to like, you know, ramp up social media. So it's kind of interesting. But yeah, they asked me, you know. I was going to say, are you the go-to person? <laughs> I mean, yes and no. <laughs> yeah. So for us, it's the same thing for residents. For our residency, we, you know, have a Twitter handle. I think most of the academic, you know, residency programs are starting to have a Twitter program or Twitter handle, excuse me. <laughs> you can see how <laughs> my uh, knowledge of social media, um, as well as, like you said, an Instagram and how do we recruit you know, and get the word, you know, spread the word. And so advertise your program, advertise these virtual meet and greets. So having the ability or the skill set and how to use your social media to market has, you know, obviously been, been beneficial to you for your practice as well as, you know, in other ways such as marketing a fellowship or a residency in academics as well. So it's nice to finally see some of that being used more in an academic setting. Yeah, I think even when I was in residency, like kind of starting out, you know, it wasn't, you know, a lot of people frowned upon, you know, having yeah. professional pages and now all of a sudden it's, you know, becoming the standard or kind of the go-to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you said Facebook as well as Instagram for your platforms for your practice. Did you have to get any like permission or anything like that from your academic centers is something that you were just able to put together? No, so I started my Instagram page probably in fellowship okay. and I guess a little bit about like each of the different platforms. So I started Instagram because it's, you know, it's easy. You like take a picture and you put a little, you know, blurb about whatever it is and then you can post it and it stays there. I, I never got into Snapchats and all the videos and, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But Instagram has a slightly younger demographics. You know, there've been studies that look at this and it's kind of the preteen to like, you know, the thirties. So for facial plastic surgery, they kind of, you know, it's a lot of like the injectable practice and the, yeah. you know, rhinoplasties. And then Facebook, you know, which I added once I had, you know, once I started developing my website, and that's a slightly older patient demographic. So that's like mid twenties and up. And if you think about it, you know, I think my parents know how to use Facebook, but right. not really Instagram. So, right. you know, that kind of opens up different, you know, procedures, you know, potentially. Mm. I think I, I actually, I do have a Twitter account. I, I don't manage that one. The, my website company takes care of that one and also Facebook as well. But Instagram, you know, I, I tend to, you know, do that on my own. Mm -hmm. Is it time consuming or is it part of just like your routine d day or week now where if it's something that's unique, you know what you want to post and it's just click, click, click and it's out there. Uh, it's like it. Everything. I mean, you get better the more you do it, yeah. I, but I, it is time consuming. And I kind of, you know, I, you know, if I have certain photos I want to include, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, s save them and then I'll, you know, post them at certain times or spread them out throughout the week. 
but it is, I mean, it does take time to kind of pick the picture, you know, put the little blurb that you want. I, I think the, the hardest part is, is, is trying to develop or how you want to present yourself on social media. Right. You know, some explain, people explain that. Yeah. So some people like to have, you know, credit, try to create these funny posts and, you know, kind of witty or whatnot. And some people keep it very professional. You know, I, I tend to keep my, you know, my work one very professional. So, you know, there's mostly stuff about me at work and, you know, patient before and afters. And, you know, I don't include a lot of like, you know, family and my personal stuff. Now there are studies that look at that and say that, you know, that, that the actual photos that get the photos that get the most likes are before and afters. The photos that get the most followers are actually your personal photos when you oh, start okay. to sh share about yourself. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. So, you know, I tend to do the personal stuff through like s the stories on Instagram and I keep the, the, the actual post about, about work. But I think, you know, a lot of practices, you know, hire someone to do their Instagram. And I think it's, I think it's obvious when it's someone else running the Instagram. Right. So I think, I think that your, you know, kind of personality and your, you know, your vision of the practice comes through. Yeah. So that's why I, I, you know, maintain control over my Instagram. Yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. I mean, patients, I think, want to get to know you beyond the surgeon persona. They, you know, do you like this person? You know what I mean? Like, do they? And you have to be, you have to be careful about like, you know, if something is, you know, really funny that you would laugh at, you know, someone else may say, well, that's not so funny that's if you're in the operating room doing it. Right. So, so what are things, so in terms of, again, just taking it back to trainees for a second, you know, these conversations in terms of social media and sort of appropriateness, or I guess, how do you balance what's appropriate for social media and then how to utilize it to your advantage for your practice? How do you sort of balance that? How do you advise trainees to be able to distinguish between the two? That's actually a really good question. The, I mean, obviously there's no, no one's governing Instagram and you can, you know, post whatever you want. Actually, no, no one's governing any of these things. I mean, you can put on whatever you want, say you're, you know, the world expert or whatever, but it's, you know, you have kind of ethical obligations. So as far as like trying to guide someone to tell them how to do it, you know, I just say, you know, I mean, honestly, you just be honest and ethical, you know, the, yeah. you know, when you're posting photos and the, I mean, that there's, you know, HIPAA with, with, you know, anything medical related is, is very, very serious. And so I know a lot of people who post photos in the operating room, you have to be very, very careful yeah. about that. You know, there can't be anything that's identifying to the patient. You know, it could be, you know, if you take a photo of the OR and all of a sudden there's a name, you know, 10 feet behind you. And that's a violation as well. So, not, and obviously if there's anything that's, you know, potentially identifying to a patient, you know, you need to have you know, consents and all, all that sort of thing. So I don't post anything without a full written consent from any of my patients. That's in the OR, in clinic, anything. And when on your consent, do you have to specifically put, this could potentially be used for, you know, the website, for Instagram, for Facebook, or is there like a general for any so social media, do you have to kind of uh, specify that kind of stuff on the photo consent? My initial photo consent kind of outlined all, you know, everything separately. Mm -hmm. And then the university, you know, redid it with their attorneys and they, 
lumped it all together. So it's kind of just one checkbox. <laughs> but I always t tell patients that, you know, you can specify how your photo is used. You know, if you want, you know, zoomed in so it's only your nose or, you know, yeah, we can use everything. So, you know, I, I give them that option. Yeah. Are there things that you were kind of worried about or thought could become an issue with uh, social media for the practice that you actually found that, hey, the patients don't, there are certain things that they, that aren't that big of a deal, maybe from the other end of it? Like, do you uh, find that your patients are pretty relaxed because it's such a common? You know, the, the younger patients like ask to be on it, honestly, okay. <laughs> they, they like follow, I, you know, because all patients now, they go, they Google and they look up who you are and Right. You know, that's, you know, some patients are like, oh, am I going to be on your Instagram or whatnot? So like, you know, so I, t I talk to them about that, you know, older patients are not going to, you know, you know, they don't know, or they don't know who looks at it. So, you know, kind of the, the pros and cons of it, you know, I would say, I mean, obviously it takes a while to kind of grow Instagram and, and actually any of the social media things. The pros are, I think it gives you kind of instant credibility when you start up because, you know, someone looks at your profile and if you have 200 followers versus 2000 versus 20,000, you know, that immediately, you know, paints a different picture yeah. in, in, than a potential patient's mind. You know, I think now I, I'm actually starting to generate patients through Instagram, which is something that I never thought would, would actually like happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so meaning other people see other people's pictures on your Instagram and then they come to you? Is that kind of how it would work? Yeah. They'll say, oh, we found you on Instagram. You know, we liked one of your photos that yeah. we like, you know, went to your website. I will say any of these social media outlets, it points, it, like it points back to a website. Okay. So if you, if you don't have a website, you know, none of these, you know, that you lose these potential patients like in cyberspace because they don't know where to go. Okay. So, so they have to be able to get from the social media. So they can page. find you. Yeah. To whatever, you know, page that has your address, your phone number and how, you know, how to get to your office. You know, I don't think your website has to be, you know, something fancy and, and that sort of thing, but it needs to be an informational site to like, that way they can, you know, reach out to you. Okay. And, and I don't encourage, or I actually, I, I discourage patients from trying to communicate me through, communicate with me through any of the social media outlets. Yeah. Oh, but so then the negatives of social media is the more visible you are, the more you kind of open yourself up to criticism. Yeah. And so that's kind of the big thing. So is, you, like, so comments that people put on the, Insta what you know, the Instagram or the um, Facebook, just comments of their opinions of whatever you've posted. So comments you have to watch out for, any type of negative comments, I make sure I take those down right away. I yeah. don't think that there's, you know, any place for that. But, you know, the more visible you are online, it's the more people will, you know, look at your reviews, right? Or right. You, you know, so right. you kind of op open yourself up more. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's, you know, pluses and minuses. Yeah. And then in terms of the website, is that something that you put, were able to do on your own? Do you have to hire somebody? Are there special um, firms out there that do websites for physicians? Yeah. So there's a, you know, there's quite a few companies that, you know, design them specifically for, I mean, you could probably find a company that, that's familiar with any, any uh, subspecialty of medicine. So the, you know, the company that I use, you know, has designed several of my friends and, 
you know, they write all the content. It's written in a certain way that it triggers Google words and all that sort mm -hmm. of thing. But designing a website's, you know, a whole nother discussion right. and I, I'm not an expert at that right. for any yeah. means. So in terms of other, we talked a lot about social media as part, as a part of um, practice building. Do you think there's still a role for other, I guess, more quote, traditional ways of, you know, going out and meeting doctors or giving talks to community physicians? You know, I don't know how relevant it is maybe in facial plastics per se, but do you feel like, you know, that sort of one-to-one -one personal, here's my cell number, call me, you know, and you've met them in their clinic. Do you feel like there's a role for that? Yeah, I, I do. And I, you know, I spent a fair amount of time driving by different physician offices. I would say the, you know, the one thing that I came across when I started to do it is when you're affiliated with, a, you know, a university, obviously your referral sources are within the university. Yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of the obvious physicians that you should reach out to first. Then, you know, trying to get someone from outside the university to refer in, you know, you have to reassure them that you're not going to steal you're not going to steal their patients that you're going to treat them for what they referred refer, referred that patient to you for and then you'll send them back so they need to have that trust otherwise you know those outside relationships get kind of hard yeah um, no i agree with you completely i think that going out meeting other whether it's general ENTs or other ENTs private practice that might refer to you tertiary care stuff is important. Those relationships are very important. And for me, you know, for peds, I met a bunch of um, community pediatricians as well. Like, here's my cell number, call me anytime. You know, it's hard for that group. They just want to make sure that your patient, their patient doesn't get lost in the system, that, you know, there is right. follow-up, that there is, you know, somebody is there that's going to, because a I feel like the fear is the academic center is this big fortress and it's just hard to navigate and get through. And yeah. so are mm -hmm. you going to be there to help get them going? And I, I, like you said, the people that are already in your network or in your university, that's a little bit easier. And I agree, it's very important to get to know those docs as well, because when you need something for your patients, you know, a consult for whatever it is, they're there for you. But breaking into the community, depending on the referral patterns, can be very difficult. Yeah. And, and I don't know what, what your institution does, but you know, when I first joined, they kind of send out a flyer to everyone to kind of alert everyone that you're there and, you know, try to boost your business. But honestly, it's like the face-to-face -face, like introductions that really make a difference. Yeah. So we, yeah, we had like a recruiter who I went out with two or three times over a year. We, we went to different, for the community pediatricians for me, we went to the different practices and there's still a handful that will refer me patients, which is nice. And in terms of academics, you know, I have a really, I have an awesome boss, if you will. My division chief is wonderful, but he also positioned me with unique opportunities to give talks, you know, like, okay, you're going to give a talk on, you know, sign, pediatric sin sinusitis to the pulmonologist or, you know, sleep apnea from the ENT perspective so that some of the other divisions kind of get to know you as well. Oh yeah, that, that, that's great. Yeah, any type of anything where you can kind of sh showcase your knowledge is yeah. a huge plus. Yeah, for sure. What what other things? I mean, in terms of practice building, I feel like you know, there's social media, there's a traditional face to face meet and greets, there's community lectures, any opportunity to be able to 
you know, give an update on whatever the new practice guideline is or to the ER doc on how to evaluate and manage a uh, nasal bone fracture. You know, all those kinds of things are important. What else have you found or do you feel like you used to, to build your practice? I mean, I don't do any like printed ads. I don't know if, you know, it, it is popular here in, in Utah, but that's not something that... Like in the local uh, community newspaper? Yeah, newspapers and magazines, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I just haven't done much of that. Although I, I do think there's probably a place for it, but I think you get more bang for your buck on, you know, social media. Yeah. I mean, honestly, social media is free. It's just, right. it's, it's just time. Yeah. And, and in a shorter period of time, you're reaching hundreds potentially, you know. Actually, I should probably mention that. That is probably the number one reason why I started with Instagram. <laughs> so I was like, it's yeah. free, you know, as long as I devote the time, it's, you know, it should, you know, hopefully grow into something. Yeah. I'm super curious about, you know, being the doctor to the, some of the sports teams, kind of how that fits into your practice and how that helps you build your practice as well. Oh, so that's, it's really an affiliation that the university has with all the organizations. And being that I'm the only facial plastic surgeon at the university, you know, I just I reached out and I'm on kind of this short list of physicians that take wow. care of these patients. I wouldn't say we get like a ton of patients and that kind of comes in waves, you know, yeah. you know, athletes are gearing up for the Olympics. You'll occasionally see one or two here and there, depending on what's going on. But I wouldn't say it's like a huge you know, part of my practice or, or a you know, huge advertising thing that I do. Yeah. So I guess when they need you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they, they call you and you have to be available at any time. Which right. Is, you know. Yeah. Um, I, mean, yeah. But, but I was going to say one thing that you mentioned about how, you know, outside physicians you know, don't want their patients to be lost within this system. So I'd say one of the most important roles or, you know, part of the practice that's really helped me is having a, an administrative assistant, which I, I guess is kind of the academic title, but in the private practice world, it's like an office manager, Yeah, you know, you know, that kind of oversees everything. It can, you know, it's kind of the point person for, you know, all contact within the practice and can help, you know, guide people and, and yeah. referrals. And that's, you know, that's something that I wouldn't have thought of, but my fellowship director said that that's, you know, really important. And I'm, you know, glad that I pushed to have that. Yeah, no, and, I agree with you completely. You need that one person where it can, you can forward that email and say, hey, I need to see this patient this week. And boom, it's done. It's taken care of. Yeah. And for facial plastic surgery, I don't know if it's just, you know, having plastic surgery in the title or whatnot, but patients, you know, like the, there's an increase in demand from patients. So yeah. you have to be, you know, ready to, to take that on. <laughs> You're like, it's not this week, it's it's this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a little bit yeah. of urgency to it. <laughs> yeah. Every everything is slightly more urgent. Yeah. <laughs> so you talk about your administrative assistant. What other clinical support or other types of administrative support do you feel is important, has been important for your practice? So my practice I keep really small because I think the more hands you have in the pot, the more potential for errors and, you know, miscommunication. So my entire office is just two MAs, that administrative assistant that I mentioned, and a scheduler. Oh, wow. So it's, and, you know, that's it. We do have, you know, one person who's kind of dedicated to the, oversee the, the practice as far as billing, because when you start to do, it's not so much whether it's purely 
insurance-based or purely cosmetic, that's not where the, the mistakes happen. But when you have these, when you're running part of it through insurance and part of it out of pocket, you know, that's where things can get kind of jumbled up in the, you know, the billing of a, of a right. big academic center. Another thing is I have a, a dedicated scrub nurse. And so I operate in do clinic at two different locations. And so yeah. my whole team kind of moves with me between the two Oh, that's locations. awesome. Yeah. So honestly, it's like a, you know, a dream setup. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's your dream team right there. And then they can go with you. That's huge. Yeah. But I would say starting out, you know, I used to see, you know, I used to see all the patients. I would see, you know, all the consults, all the follow-ups, you know, I would do all the suture removals and you know, I think building a practice, it's all that, you know, kind of hands-on face-to-face contact yeah. Yeah. that, you know, really helps develop the practice. And now, you know, now I'm, you know, busy and I, I need, you know, to offload some of that stuff. And so the MAs do some of the suture removal, but I think kind of the early on you know, them seeing how I interact with the patients and my instructions on, you know, what I tell them at one week, at one mm-hmm. month, at three months, at six months, you know, They've heard it, you know, a thousand yeah. times so that they're, you know, c- comfortable dealing with it. And, you know, they, you know, I always tell them, text me about anything. You know, I'd like to, I'd, I'd rather know too much than too little. Right. And so we're, you know, we have our own text chain with the office and, you know, we're always in contact with each other. Yeah. That availability to your staff is very important because that's what's going to keep that availability to your patients. You touched a little bit on COVID and how you've actually seen a jump in the patient volume. In terms of day-to-day practice management, has COVID, how, how has it changed the day-to-day stuff, I guess? Yeah, so we shut down, I think, for six weeks. It was like no elective surgeries, which is honestly like the vast majority of what I do. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I did do some facial fractures, that sort of thing during that shutdown. So, so when we opened... You know, we were wearing N95 masks all the time and it was only, you know, the surgeries and, you know, consults and, you know, follow-ups we would do virtual. And, you know, I I used to scope patients in the office. I, you know, I stopped doing anything that was potentially aerosolizing. Yeah. Um, So it's really just kind of face-to-face and kind of a quick exam. And then the follow-ups were virtual. I did do, the virtual consults, I think, helped it was kind of like a band-aid while we were kind of closed down. Yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah, I mean, I think it's some specialties. It, it, it does help. I think in facial plastic surgery, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, because that physical exam is kind of, you know, can you operate and can you fix this? The answer yeah. is like, yes or no. There's no like real medical management unless it's like wound care stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I, I there wasn't a great conversion between consult and surgery with virtual consults. Yeah. And I don't think patients took the consults quite as seriously. So, you know, when we had a bunch of like emergency privileges where we could, you know, practice across state lines and all that kind of stuff with all the neighboring states. And we kind of stopped doing the virtual consults because of that. So we do all in person now and we do. So I still test everyone for COVID going to the OR. I don't do any aerosolizing generating procedures or scopes or anything in the clinic. So I can wear a regular mask in clinic and eye protection, which is what my staff does. Mm. And then, you know, everything is essentially back to in-person. I do, you know, follow-ups in person as well. The, you know, as you know, once the 
COVID shutdown and kind of the reopening happened, you know, the guidelines were kind of all over the place. You know, some yeah. institutions were super cautious and some, you know, were really delayed in their, you know, in what they were doing. You know, I think we talked before, you know, Stanford kind of early on published yeah. like what they were doing. And I kind of used that as a guideline and they were, you know, too. very cautious. Yeah, for sure. So I, so I think my practice is, you know, restrictions and guidelines were, you know, much, um, we're much stricter than the University of Utah in general was doing. Yeah. And I, I still think we are, but but again, my practice is very elective, so I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's worth putting anyone at risk, you know, whether it's a, you know, patient or staff or anything right. like that. So I kind of err on the side of caution. Yeah, no, I think that is smart and very reasonable, and I agree. The Stanford guidelines from that were circulating by Zara Patel were super helpful and definitely helped me in multiple situations, especially in those first few weeks before the academy had guidelines out. I give her a lot of credit for taking the, you know, initiative and voicing, hey, this is a real issue and, you know, we need to think about protecting ourselves because if we if we aren't, nobody else is going to be doing that for us. Yeah, so, I thank her for putting that together and circulating it, you know, quickly. For sure. I mean, I don't, I, there's most, I feel like there's so many people who got it and I got it not just, and I remember receiving it from multiple different sources. And so I thought that was very, very helpful because it at least gave me some guidance and communication in a time of kind of panic, you know, of just uncertainty and hearing certain, you know, maybe demands on one end or expectations on one end, yet what are, what's, what's realistic and what's appropriate on the other <laughs> Yeah, I found that a lot of the other guidelines, you know, all the journals tried to like quickly put out articles and, but, but they were, you know, delayed by several weeks and the, you know, information yeah. was changing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And what what was it? Social media that got yeah. some of the, you know, that at least got the communication <laughs> and some of the stuff out uh, yeah. when it was needed. You touched a little bit on um, virtual consults and, you know, maybe not necessarily being the, is, well, I guess my question is, is there a role at all for certain virtual visits uh, in your practice, in a facial plastics practice potentially? Or do you feel like if the preference is going to be in person as much as you and the patient is able to do it? I think most of it's in person. I think, you know, virtual visits you can do if it's, you know, like a cosmetic consult or it's like facial rejuvenation and you're kind of, you know, looking at a patient and giving them, you know, your recommendations. Nasal consults are extremely difficult because you can't really evaluate the inside of the nose or any type of function. You know, I, I do think that there's a role, say, in like facial paralysis patients where you're looking to see, you know, you want to see how well the face moves. And yeah. that's, so I do think that that helps. Some follow-ups, I think the initial follow-up after, you know, surgery, I don't use a lot of dissolvable sutures, but even if I did, I'd want to see the patient back to make sure that the, you know, the incisions are healing well. You know, I, there's not a lot of, you know, if someone has like a facial fracture, I can look at a scan and say yes or no, it needs to be repaired or not. Yeah. And then I, I can, you know, see them right before surgery. So I, I don't, I don't think facial plastic surgery, the, the role of, of virtual visits is, you know, as beneficial as say, you know, other fields like rhinology, where you kind of go over, you know, CAT scans and discuss it with patients and there's medical management. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, but I, I, I agree guess, with you because even when you're, like you said, you can't look in the nose. <laughs> you can't yeah. look in an ear. You can't always look. Even when, you know, to have them show me the back of the throat, that lighting has got to be whatever, you know, otherwise it looks dark. Anything and then you always have connection problems. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, yeah. there's always technical problems. And so you're, you know, devote all this time to it. And then at the end, you're like, well, I need to see you in person. So like, you know, at, at, and, and I don't know what the hospital guidelines are, but I, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to double bill a patient. Oh yeah. So yeah, no, for sure. I've had to so, convert many virtuals onto just telephones. Like, let me just get yeah. you. And I don't know what platform you guys use. I mean, we had, you know, it was all done through, but they wanted us to do it through Epic or MyChart. I think yeah. this is what they have now, but you know, before we were doing, you know, FaceTime and Zoom and yeah, um, you know, it's kind of Doximity like a, came out with one. Yes, I think Doximity is actually supposed to be pretty good. We they have one on the adult side here called Blue Gene, I think, and then the one that we use at Children's is called like American Well Clinician, which is hit or miss. I'd say about it works about 70 percent of the time, but then there's still you know, that 20, 30% chance that it, it may just disconnect yeah. or freeze or glitch or something. So I mean, I think FaceTime works the best, but I, you know, I don't know if that's like, you know, up to privacy standards. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not as far as, you know, for billing purposes. Yeah. Well, Eric, do you have anything else, any other pearls or pitfalls or anything else you want to leave our audience with in terms of practice building today? I mean, I think the pearl is just to, you know, work hard, you know, do good work, get good results and the rest kind of follows, you know, and you have to be flexible. You know, I think that COVID has, you know, challenged a lot of us with adjusting our practices and different patient demographics and different surgeries and that sort of thing. You just have to be flexible as, as, you know, it's, it's another challenge that we face. Yeah, for sure. And I think what you, you hit the nail on the head, you just have to work hard. (laughs) Um, yeah yeah i mean at the end of the day it's elbow grease sleeves up true grit and do the right thing and the practice will build i mean there's no there's no trick to it you know even you know people who take shortcuts and you buy a bunch of instagram followers you know it's you know it's obvious who those people are so yeah uh, you just do good work and it'll slowly grow it will i i hear you thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, I learned a ton, um, especially about practice building. I enjoyed a lot of the conversation on the COVID stuff as well. So I really appreciate your time, Eric. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Hopefully it was beneficial. Yeah. If people want to find you, do you want to tell us what your, um, how to, how they can find you, your social, social, social media connections? (laughs) Social media uh, on Instagram, it's just at Dr. Cerati, so Dr. C-E-R-R-A-T-I. Uh, my website is just www.drericsarati.com. All the links from there. Are you going to go create an Instagram page now? No, Uh-oh. no. <laughs> I have no Instagram. I kind of, this is my first coming out from under my social media, like rock. Like I didn't have anything until we started doing our Backtable ENT podcast. <laughs> so that's why some of the lingo, I'm like, oh, what do they do when they, they like, like, what do you do? But for our listeners who are interested in finding out about more of us at Backtable ENT, the Twitter handle is underscore Backtable ENT. And before we leave today, I just wanted to take a moment to 
think about uh, Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg and all that she contributed. Um, I was super sad, obviously, with the rest of the world at her loss on Friday. She was obviously one of the biggest warriors, icons for gender equality, really a true civil rights hero. And so a major loss, but somebody who will remember. But anyways, tune in. Going forward, we'll probably be doing one to two shows a month. You feel free to email me at gopi at backtable.com for any suggestions, questions. If you want to come on the show, topics, we're here. Take care. And that's a wrap.